Welcome to another week's Weather the Collector Show. I'm Harold Nickel. Coming up later in the program, two interviews this week. A huge change for us. The show is twice as long as it once was. We're going to be talking about collecting Pez, Pez containers, and the history of the Pez movement. And then we're going to be talking about fruit crate label collecting, all coming up later in the show. And I think it's cool that this is probably the second and possibly the third time on this show where we've talked to the person who actually invented a hobby, the hobby of fruit crate labels. It's linked to American art and history. You won't want to miss that. And then, of course, Heather Gallegos coming up with a found collectible of the week. Something else that I want to mention, you know, I know people have been traveling a good bit lately, and you may have missed past shows. Well, there's no need to ever miss an edition of The Collector Show, because you can subscribe to the program by going to iTunes. Just go to iTunes, look for The Collector Show, and subscribe. It's free. And each and every edition of our program will be downloaded to your iTunes. You can listen to it on your iPod or your other MP3 player. And, of course, you can always visit Web Talk Radio and hear this program and all the other great shows that are on Web Talk Radio. So no need to ever miss The Collector Show Here, as always, before we get into the interview segment of the program, is the news. And this is an item from Middleburg, Tennessee. Diane Hassinger collects keychains, but they don't have keys on them. Each one opens something, and it's a memory of hers. Her keychain collection numbers in the 2400 range, said the 66-year-old from Middleburg. I don't collect them for the monetary rewards, but for what they represent, my life. They remind her of all the places she's traveled and the people in her life. There's a little bit, if just about everything, a little princess phone, sports memorabilia, Disney memorabilia, Keychains from the armed services, holidays, puzzles, bells, a working calculator, and one, my personal favorite, to read about the 100th anniversary of Breyer's ice cream and Bloomberg Fair keychains. These date back to the beginning of her life. I think she said she started collecting them when she was 10 years old. And um, I can remember early in my career, I used to get letters from people who wanted to collect things that had corporate logos on them. And one of the corporate logo requests I got was for keychains. And I don't remember if it was her or not, but I guess it very well could have been. And hey, Miss Hassinger, hang on to your keychains because guess who wants to tax your collectible? The IRS. There is a new audit manual issued by the Internal Revenue Service to its agents, and it concerns hobby losses, which are efforts by taxpayers to improperly write off the costs of their stamp collecting, fishing excursions, and other side activities. At a time when the federal government is desperate for revenue, the Internal Revenue Service has issued a new manual to help its agents ferret out taxpayers and properly writing off the costs of hobbies. This is from Forbes.com, by the way. You can go there and read the whole thing. The latest audit technique guide covers the application of what is known informally as the hobby loss rule. This is the Internal Revenue Code provision, Section 183, that prohibits taxpayers from reducing their taxable income through losses generated from activities conducted primarily for personal pleasure rather than as a profit-seeking business. The effort to focus on hobby losses is the latest in a series of IRS initiatives scrutinizing taxpayers' side ventures. 
The agency has solicited comments on how to implement a new law requiring payment card companies to report sales from taxpayers selling goods over eBay. The new hobby loss manual, which can be viewed online at uh, the Forbes website, contains a long list of hobbies that the IRS deems as red flags. It includes horse and dog breeding, yacht chartering, airplane leasing, gambling, photography, fishing, stamp collecting, bowling, riding, and farming. In a 2007 report by the Treasury Inspector General for Tax Administration, this person suggests that improper hobby loss claims cost the federal government billions of dollars a year in tax revenue. So, if you are writing off your bowling losses or your fishing losses, and it's not really legitimate, you can look to hear from the Internal Revenue Service for taxing purposes. Um, I personally don't do this because I just, um, I don't know. I never thought it was uh, such a hot idea to start with, but now I think it validates the fact that um, if you're not operating a legitimate business as part of your collecting, don't try to take it as a tax loss. But it also kind of infuriates me, and we don't get into politics on this show, that they're uh, continuing to look for ways to take our hard-earned money away from us. And I just hate that. And I'm not sure how you can deduct your bowling losses, but... um, I guess we learn something new every week here on The Collector's Show. So just a tidbit there. Go to Forbes.com to read the rest. And like I said earlier, if you've missed an edition of The Collector's Show, go to iTunes, download all of them, or better yet, subscribe, or go back to Web Talk Radio and listen. And you can hear tons of other shows on Web Talk Radio, not just ours. But um, I just commend that to you. Okay. Coming up next, it's Pez, later on Fruit Crate Labels, and then the Found Collectibles of the Week, all coming up next on The Collector's Show with me, Harold Nickel. Well, in the time we've done The Collector's Show over the past year, or so, we have been very fortunate to have some people who really are passionate about their hobbies and who are bona fide experts. And we're inviting Chris Jordan, who is the owner of PezCollectors.com, back to the show for the benefit of those of you who've joined the audience lately and didn't hear Chris when she was on with us the first time and to learn even more about the world of collecting Pez. And Chris, welcome back to The Collector's Show. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure to be back. Now, um, I know that when I was a kid, I loved to eat Pez, and I wished I had kept the containers that they came in. But tell us just, you know, which came first? Was it the candy or the or the displays? What was the big idea behind Pez? Pez was actually a first made as a candy. Mm-hmm. Um, Pez stands for... It's the German word for peppermint. Mm-hmm. Um, it's pfefferminz. And so the word Pez comes from the first, the middle, and the last letter of the word pfefferminz. Mm-hmm. So originally it was just a peppermint-flavored candy. Mm-hmm. They were sold in very small little tins, sort of similar to an Altoids tin. Oh, sure. Smaller, um, like the, pocket can, the little pocket tins that you would have for aspirin or Tylenol. Mm-hmm. Um, that's how they were originally sold, and that was back in the 40s. Okay. So it was German candy, it sounds like. German oh, yeah. peppermint candy. But now the... the um, sorry, go ahead. 
Pez International, Pez is actually based and owned by the Haas family um, in Austria. Really? Now, is this the same Haas family that owns the chemical company, Roman Haas? Or is it a different? It's different. No, um, but they do have, carry a line of baking products oh. that are very popular in Europe Okay, uh, for baking bread, pies, things like that. Okay. And Chris, if I could ask you just to back off your phone just a bit, because okay. oh, that's perfect. Thank you. Now, okay, so um, we start out as German peppermint candy, but the candy we get here is not peppermint. It's sweet. When did that evolution take place? In 1948, the first candy dispenser itself was developed. Mm-hmm. And it was developed just as a hygienic means of offering someone a candy so that you didn't get your fingers all over it. Oh. The candy was in the container. You could flip the head back and offer somebody a single mint. That came to the United States in 1950, and it did not go over well at all. Oh, no kidding. Now, see, I would have thought that germaphobes would have been all over Something like that. Because, you know, people will always, and there's the expression that if somebody offers you a mint, you should take it. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, you know, there's also, you know, we've got swine flu and just living in the age of cooties. I thought that uh, something like that would have been popular, but you say not. Not in the 1950s. Mm. It was um, just not well received at all. And the company was very much going under in the United States. So... The idea was, well, we'll change the flavor of the candy, we'll put a character head on the top of the dispenser, and instead of marketing it to adults as an anti-smoking or something to do besides smoking, Mm -hmm. we'll market it to the kids. Okay. It took off astronomically at that point. Now, who was the first head, the first character head? There's a lot of question about that. Um, Certainly the very first character head was probably the witch. Okay. um, Or a Santa Claus. Okay. And then the licensed characters, it's sort of questionable whether it was Casper, Popeye, or Mickey Mouse. Okay. See, I would have guessed right away that it it was Mickey Mouse just because he was so popular. But it sounds like maybe this was more of a Halloween thing with a witch. Well, first they wanted to try it with something that they didn't have to purchase a license for. Oh, well, that makes sense. Because Walt Disney, of course, has the license for the Mickey Mouse character. Right. Um, Harvey had the license for the Casper. Oh, okay. So they tried it out with something of their own um, with just the holiday heads. And and that took off really well. So popular with the kiddos as a more of a no- novelty or a toy than it was for uh, germaphobes or people who wanted to quit smoking. Absolutely. So take us through then the success of it as a toy. When did the popularity of collecting the toys, when did that start and how did it start? Well, and originally it was, it's not, you know, a well-made, extremely you know, durable product. It was intended to be used, played with a little bit, thrown away, and you can go buy another one the next right. time you get candy. Um, who ever thought of collecting them? Certainly when I was a kid, I didn't think about it. I sure wish I had. Yeah, me too. Pet <laughs> um, Head Zero is Marianne Kennedy. She's a woman in Minnesota. Okay. She is the first person 
to everyone's knowledge, she began collecting when Pez dispensers first were released. Wow. And she had nobody else to collect with or talk with. And at that time, we didn't have internet. Um, so all communication was done between collectors via telephone or handwritten letters. Wow. So uh, um, she was a lonely, a lonely Pez collecting figure, it sounds like, to start out with. Yeah, so we call her, and she is still around. She is still collecting. Actually, she's going to be doing a seminar at the Minnesota Pez Convention this August. Oh, I want to get to uh, summer conventions before uh, before we hang up. But I, I uh, before we get to that, um, kind of like I, oh, I hate to use this comparison, but instead of patient zero, she was uh, Pez collector zero. That is, right. and does anybody know why it occurred to her that? Uh, Collecting these things might be fun or a good idea. She enjoys for the same reason that collectors today get started. You get one, you hang on to it, you put a second one beside it. By the time you've got ten, you look at it and say, "Wow, that's really colorful. That's really neat. Mm-hmm. Maybe I should start a collection." That is neat, and um, there's certain kinds of uh, Pez head. Uh, I guess you could call them families, because like I own uh, the Peanuts characters. Pez dispensers, and there's all different kinds of the licensed products, but um, we talked a little bit about this before with uh, the first licensed products. When did those really become vogue? When did we really see an onslaught of licensed characters? In the early days, Pez would only release a handful of new characters um, for a whole year. There would only be four or five, maybe six different dispensers. Mm-hmm. Um, and that went on pretty much through till the 70s when they started releasing what were called Pez Pals. Okay. And the Pez Pal is a single head mold. It's a, well, it can be a boy, it can be a girl. It depends on what kind of hair you put on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, this was the Pez Boy, um, the Pez Pal, his name was Pezzy. And he was a detective. And so he would dress in all different costumes. And they had a little comic strip that came with the dispensers that would tell about what Pezzy was doing. And so Pezzy might dress up as a sailor or a doctor or a nurse, um, all sorts of different characters. And, And that sort of created, by using the same mold, a larger variety of dispensers. Mm hmm for people to begin collecting, and kids could swap the parts. The parts were interchangeable. This, of course, was before the days of, you know, choking hazards and <laughs> right. things being pulled off the market for those reasons. Small parts, choking hazard. We've all seen that warning label. Yeah. That's, um, that didn't exist at the time. No, and, and you know what? We all survived somehow, or at least uh, most of us did. Um, don't get me started on those kinds of regulations. <laughs> But it sounds like somebody in the marketing department at Pez had in mind, you know, we should treat these like um, adventure, um, like G.I. Joe or like or like Barbie. We give them interchangeable parts. We develop a storyline and it's things that will keep you coming back to the Pez line to find out what what happened Pezzy this week or this month. Fair assessment? Fair assessment, totally. It was a good marketing move on their part. And it was a relatively inexpensive way to do this. At that, at that time, 
molds were very expensive to have cut and tooled and made for the machines. Mm-hmm. Today, to, in today's time, they will release 20 new PEZs that have completely different molds in a year. Oh, wow. Um, because they're relatively inexpensive to produce. Mm-hmm. And they're not produced out of the heavy steel to last for an eternity. No. They're designed for a short run, um, and then they move on to the next character. Do the PEZ people or the people at the company even today, are they aware of or in touch with uh, the collecting community or not? <laughs> no, that you sound. No. That sounds pretty emphatic. Tell us about that. Um. Well, actually, they're kind of mad at the collectors right now. Get out! How could they be mad at you? Well, they're actually mad at Burlingame um, Museum of Pez Memorabilia. Yes. Because Burlingame has they had produced or made for them a single dispenser. Um, that looks like a snowman. Mm-hmm. It, they're being sued right now by Pez Company for trademark infringement. Oh, dear. Because of this giant Pez dispenser, which made it into the Guinness Book of World Records as the world's largest Pez dispenser. And Pez is not happy with that. I just will never get over something like that because, um, you know, sitting here as, I mean, I spend most of my day promoting stuff if somebody wants to spend their own money to promote my products god love them and wish there were more but that's not the that's not the reaction you got or that they got and and i do understand that pest company does have you know a trademark and to protect their trademark um they have to go anything after anything that appears to be trademark infringement. But it would seem to me that rather than suing the Burlingame Museum of Pez, you could get them to purchase a licensing right yeah. for that particular dispenser. Or, and it's a great promotion. Or sign a marketing and agreement. Sure. And, or um, insist that they sell Pez at their place. Or they do. They sell a substantial amount. That's pretty much all they do. Uh, this is what happens when, when lawyers run amok because um, there's no way anybody with a marketing brain would ever allow such a thing. It's so, such a great opportunity. And you said, and we're going to explore this a little bit more, you said that they uh, weren't happy with you guys at all, and all you do is buy stuff from them. Help, mm-hmm. help me wrap my brain around that. They just don't really embrace the collector um, as far as donating anything to the conventions, um, which are all about Pez. Sure. They don't attend the conventions. Um, It's very, very difficult to get any information, even on upcoming releases. Even my sales rep has a hard time getting information on what's new, what's coming out, what's going on at Pez. Yeah. And Pez collectors want to know. They're dying for information of what's the new release that's going to come out. And yet, I'm not allowed, even though I, I have some information, I'm not allowed to share pictures for one month prior to the release, to the first scheduled release date of that next set. Well, that... Uh that stuns me because we've had other company reps that 
manufacture things for not they don't manufacture them for collectors but they certainly acknowledge that there are collectors and will send speakers to their conventions and publish catalogs full of here's what's coming up next year in our in our line of um well, I'm thinking specifically about the Hallmark company and their Christmas ornaments um yeah. do everything they can to front end load the market and offer limited offerings for sale during the month of July but you've been stiff-armed yeah. so far. Probably Pez International, um, which is based in Linz, Austria, does release a catalog hmm. for Europeans. Oh. Um, we don't have, we don't get the same things that they get in Europe. I can get them through, I have to go through European dealers. Right. Um, and then have them shipped to the United States. Okay. So that I can, through the Pez Collector's store, sell them to collectors. But... Pez USA, based in Orange, Connecticut, doesn't do anything of that sort. Well, that's too bad, because I'm looking at your website, PezCollectors.com, and it's very colorful. It's very well put together. You've got current Pez dispensers. You've got European Pez. Tell us about what the difference between U.S. or American Pez dispensers and European are, and is there a profound difference? Europe releases characters that are not as released in the United States. Sometimes that's because of licensing rights. Mm-hmm. Um, it's much more expensive for Pez to get the licensing rights to a particular dispenser in the United States or to a particular character in the United States right. than it is for the Europeans to get that licensing right. Sometimes there are characters in Europe that just are not popular at all mm-hmm. in the United States. For example, Winx is coming out. Um, actually, they shipped to me today from Europe. Um, but who's ever heard of Winx in the United States? Well, I have to admit I have not, and that was going to be my next question. Who or what is Winx? <laughs> well, I had to Google around to find, find out what they are. For a Pez collector, it doesn't matter what it is. Oh, okay. I could care less. It's a Pez. It's right. a new Pez. Um, Winx is sort of an, it's kind of a cross between anime um, and like our cartoon series, The Brats. Okay. And the Disney Fairies. These are characters that look very similar to the Brats in dress. Um, but they're fairies. They have membranous wings. Oh, cool. It sounds neat. It's just, I don't, I don't know. I don't follow brats probably like I should and, uh, the other stuff, but it sounds like fun. But, um, but that's an example of something that's going to just sell like crazy there and here only amongst collectors. Is that what I'm hearing? Pretty much, yeah. So there's no point in in Pez Company trying to contract or get the licensing rights for that character. They say that the collector, if every collector stopped collecting Pez and buying new Pez, um, it would not put a dent. It wouldn't even register on the radar screen as a blip on their sales. See, they market primarily to kids. Yeah, what they say. But then when I see them producing sets like the OCC Orange County Chopper guys, yeah, I don't think they're going after six-year-olds with those. No, there's not a lot of six-year-olds on choppers that we know of. 
Exactly. <laughs> and most six-year-olds, at least if that was my six-year-old, I wouldn't let them be watching that television show. Yeah, never mind. Get on one of the things. No, I get what you're saying. I, 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 and I would take that bet with them that uh, the collecting community doesn't doesn't impact their business. So I'm looking at your website and I'm seeing um, the licensed products and all these different kinds of things that I could get at PezCollectors.com. If, if after our interview today, somebody's listening and they say, you know, by golly, I'm going to start collecting Pez, what's the first thing you would recommend that they do? Um, I guess I would, this is, this is in hindsight. Right. I would say decide how and what you want to collect. Okay. Um, in terms of licensed characters or certain lines of license, like I've got all of the Charlie Brown and Snoopy Pez, is that right. what you mean? Do you want to collect as a whole set? Do you want to collect only particular characters that you really like right. and really relate to? Do you want to collect current Pez? Do you want to collect vintage Pez? Mm-hmm. Um, do you want to collect everything Pez? Do you want all of the anything and everything that happens to say Pez on it, even though it's not a dispenser? Yeah, I'm, I'm looking and, at, uh, like you've got Pez fabric on your website, yeah. lapel pins. Um, tell us about uh, fabric <laughs> from Pez. And do, the, and do they make it, or is this a license that they have sold? They have sold the license. Well, you may have heard um, us disconnect there kind of abruptly, and I apologize. And um, I was just telling Chris that my toe hit one of the cords that's underneath the desk here in the <laughs> in the studio, and everything went away. So um, apologies to everybody for... Uh, for my uh, technical goof, and uh, I've got my feet under the chair now, and so this ought not happen again. But before we left, before I kicked the cord out of the wall, we were talking about licensing from Pez and Pez Fabrics. And uh, Chris, if you could um, just take up from where we left off there. All right. Well, the Pez Fabric, Pez sold the license to A.E. Nathan, um, to develop a line of fabric that features Pez candies, candy dispensers. And I have to think that that's probably something that's being used primarily by the collectors because most people probably don't want a pair of Pez pants or Pez curtains or a Pez bedspread. But collectors really do. Sure. Um, and it's been a very popular item. I've sold yards and yards of it. Yeah, and I want to talk about uh, your website and the things that you offer there because you allowed that, you know, the company doesn't really support you. So um, are you kind of on your own with developing your, your own expertise and the things for sale on your website? Oh, absolutely. Um, I go, I search high and low for different things and different vendors. Um, I purchased United States releases directly from Pez Company, um, except where there's an exclusive. For example, some of the um, NCAA footballs were released to, they were sold exclusively to a chain of stores or a single store. For mm-hmm. example, the Nebraska was sold to a single candy store in Nebraska. Oh, no I kidding. I my car and drive to Nebraska to this candy store. Where do you live? And load my car with cases. Yeah. Where did you drive from? 
from Kansas City. You you drove from well. Well, it was only up to Omaha, so it was only about a two and a half hour drive. Yeah, but still, you couldn't talk the. You couldn't talk the candy store guy into mailing them to you, or I did for Utah. Okay. Um, there's a BYU Brigham Young University sure. and a University of Utah, and I did convince the store there to ship some to me. Um, I did the same thing for a store, another. It was a drugstore chain mm-hmm. in Washington. They are, the last guy just got in the car and drove. They are not making your life any easier. No, sometimes it's a real challenge to get your hands on things. but And that's, that's the reason that many people come to my store and shop in my stores mm-hmm. because I do try to carry everything that is out there that I can possibly get um, because other people, the grocery store in Utah is not going to ship a single dispenser to somebody. Probably not. When I ordered case after case, then they were willing to talk to me. I will, of course, ship a single dispenser to anybody that orders, Well, and whatever that, you want to order. And I wanted to talk about uh, your store. I mean, this is a virtual store, but it's PezCollectors.com, and it looks like just about anything Pez is available there. Um, from a business point of view, is this, uh, is this a good business to be in, the Pez business? Because I enjoy it so much. Right. I'm a collector first and foremost. Okay. And I'm a Pez dealer to support my habit. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I get that. I mean, um, you want to have extra money to go out and buy whatever the latest Pez is. And the way to do that, support your hobby, is by selling Pez to, to other folks. And Right. And I meet a lot of people. It's really the Pez collectors that, that make so much of it so fun. Um, it's just the new people that you get to meet. And I wanted to get to that. Of Pez. And I wanted to get to that too. You have gatherings and uh, meetings and conventions of other Pez collectors. Tell us about those. Well, I host the Kansas City Pez Heads Gathering. Okay. And we've held that for the past two years in Kansas City um, Memorial Weekend. We're looking at possibly changing that to the weekend before Memorial for next year. Okay. Um, But there are different Pez conventions across the United States. Uh, St. Louis is the annual National Pez Convention. Then next week in Cleveland, Ohio, is Pezomania. 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 Well, anything that ends... The Minnesota Pez Convention is coming up in August. Now, do you post these uh, on your website, Pez Collectors? Notices about them? I send a monthly newsletter. Um anybody who cares to subscribe to it. Okay. It's free, completely free. Okay. Um, but we try to provide that, the information of what's new, what's coming out, what's anticipated release, where can you find some of these different exclusive things, you know, at your own Walmart or um, where are different things being released. And then we also provide a little bit of information about the upcoming conventions, Um Anything and everything that's happening in the world of Pez. It sounds like fun. Now, are these gatherings reasonably well attended? Oh, yes. Um, I think attendance, well, Pez sales, everything has, the economy's been down. I think everything's a little bit down. But I actually had better attendance at my gathering this year than I did last year. Um, Attendance, there's good attendance at, at these because 
you've got to get your pets fixed. Well, sure. And uh, I know it's always fun to talk to other people who, who share an interest like collecting pets. And uh, we're forever uncovering different conventions of like-minded people who collect different things. And so, you know, you guys are in good company. Will you add me to your uh, mailing list of your newsletter? Because I'd love to get it and um, keep up with what's going Absolutely. on in the world of Pez. Absolutely. Any parting thoughts for our audience, Chris? Whatever you decide to collect, make sure it's something you love. Okay. Enjoy your collection. That is so well said, and um, I want to thank Chris Jordan of PedsCollectors.com for uh, joining us this week on The Collector's Show, and I know we'll want to have you back, Chris, so thanks for that. And coming up on The Collector's Show, in our next interview segment, we are going to be talking about collecting fruit labels. Hang in there for that on The Collector's Show. Well, I'm very sorry. Well, hang on one second. Well, we're going to shift gears now from talking about the world of Pez collecting to talking about a subject we have never covered on The Collector's Show. We're going to be chatting with Pat Jacobson, who is an agrolith... I can't even say it, agrolithologist, and he is the owner of a company called FruitCrateLabels.com, and Pat collects fruit crate labels. And Pat, i got to tell you, um, this topic has never come up on the show before, and uh, I'm hoping that you can introduce us to the world of fruit crate label collecting. Now, um, you know, we talk about a lot of different kinds of collections on the show, Um most much more pedestrian than fruit crate labels, but so first, tell us just exactly what is a fruit crate label. Well, any place that agricultural products have been shipped, and that would be many different countries around the world, twenty-three American states. Any place, for example, they grow apples, like in Washington State, or pears in Oregon, or oranges in California. Through the last um, hundred and twenty-five or so years, when the railroads finally made their way around America, the different growers would have uh, wooden crates that they put their different fruit products in, and those would go on a railroad car, and then they would be shipped back to cities in the east. Mm -hmm. And the way to identify the different growers' fruits was that each crate had a label on the end of it, okay, which is similar to like any kind of canned food would have its own label, et cetera. Everything had labels. And so um, all of the different packing companies uh, for ag- agricultural products, and on the Pacific Coast, say Washington, Oregon, California, there were maybe 10,000 packing companies over the years. Wow. And they would all have two or three different labels, a, a first quality, a second quality, etc. And so there would be like 20 or 30,000 labels being used all over the, you know, all over the coast and then across the country, right. Michigan and Nova Scotia and other places that are shipping agricultural products, and they're labeling their crates. So this was just product labeling is what it really amounted to, and it yeah. was for fresh produce. It wasn't just fruit, or was it only fruit? No, it was fruit and vegetables. Um, 
Some fruits were more durable in the early years, uh, such as apples and oranges, but then as refrigeration came into the rail lines, um, cherries and pears and softer, more perishable types of fruits um, began to be shipped. And uh, my gosh, you know, the tonnage was uh, just unbelievable. And billions of labels were used over the last century throughout America. It's one of the biggest innate art forms in America, which is surprising that not that many people really know about it for what it really is. Well, and that's something that, you know, I want to talk about more with you is the quality of the art, because I was looking at your website um, before the call, and the quality of the illustrations is quite stunning. It is. It is. Fascinating art. Now, is, is that what originally attracted you to... Uh, collect these labels or was it something else well it was kind of a it was kind of two two reasons when i was a young younger person mm-hmm. a young man my dad gave me a little stamp collection and some coins that he'd collected over the years right and i started collecting them but on the weekends we would have to go to a stamp store or a coin shop and pay the man x amount of dollars and for an eight-year-old kid in the 60s, that was kind of tough yeah. to get that next coin to add or that next stamp to put in your book. And eventually it got to the point where things were so expensive that, you know, being you know, eight or 10 or 11 years old, I, I'm never going to afford a, you know, that. So it kind of <laughs> right. put a bosh on, on my collecting. And I had some baseball cards that my mother threw away. And so... Hey, everybody's mother threw their cards away. <laughs> That's one thing we know for sure. But anyway, yeah, sorry. <laughs> so um, basically what happened is I was working in a produce store one time and I, um, some boxes came in and, and my parents were, were moving and they said, can we get some boxes? And I said, sure. And I took these boxes. My mother goes, well, that's a, that's a nice thing, that label on the end. And I was moving into my first bachelor pad, so I hung some on the wall. Uh-huh. The and a, a friend of mine said, you know, in San Francisco, there's a little shop where a lady has those. I said, really? So I went to her store and... She had a bunch of labels, and one of them on the wall was $100. Get out. I said, why is that? She goes, oh, that's really rare. That's from Southern California. There's only a few of them. I said, well, gosh, where do all these come from? Well, farms all over the Pacific Coast. Mm -hmm. Well, I had just gotten out of out of high school and I was a jazz musician mm-hmm. and I had a pretty inexpensive rent on my apartment and I thought, I'm going to go look for some of these. So I went to a packing house down in Central California and the man said, uh, how big a car do you have? <laughs> little, little El Camino. He goes, pull it around back. And so I pulled around back and he opened this door to a big, big uh, storage facility and it was absolutely filled with boxes of labels. And he goes, take all you want. You're doing me a favor. Get them out of here. We don't use those anymore because everybody uses cardboard boxes with the printing already on them. Oh my gosh. And so I went home with this entire car load, an El Camino, filled with labels. And I went back to the girl in San Francisco and I said, want to do some trading? And she goes, absolutely. And yeah. she gave me one or more of everything in her files in her store and I gave her half of a truckload of labels. So she was thrilled and I was thrilled. And then I went to, back to the produce store where I was working and the guy said, hey, you know, we could probably sell some of those here. What do you think? And I said, okay. And so all of a sudden, I wasn't going to a stamp or coin store to buy something. People were getting something from me. Right. So I started traveling the whole Pacific coast from British Columbia down to Arizona, going everywhere I could to get labels. And eventually I started getting labels that were not in large numbers. They were actually quite rare. Mm -hmm. And so I began collecting them for posterity. I said, I'm going to collect one of every different label I can get my hands on. I'm going to leave it to posterity. 
But in the meantime, if I get 10 or 20 or 10,000 of something, I'll mm-hmm. have a business in it. So the whole thing provides for itself. That's cool. That's just kind of how it all took off. Now, in those days, though, there couldn't have been a price guide for labels or anything like that. So no. you developed your expertise on your own as far as what was worthwhile, what was rare, what wasn't? Well, I would go to, um, uh, there were some people who dealt in paper paper goods. I mean, they've, they've, all, they've been doing that since the 50s. Mm-hmm. And there was a guy, he had some labels, and I took him some more, and he said, what do you think we should sell these for? I said, I don't know, buck or two, whatever the traffic will bear. Mm-hmm. And so we would do some trading, and he would put them on his list. So there came a list. And then he goes, well, you should really go see this guy in this town, because he's been selling some stuff. So pretty soon there was two guys, and there was 10, and there was 30. And so there were a bunch of people who were with antique stores and things selling labels, and they had to make a, a list or put them out in public. Well... The reason I got into doing a price guide is because I was traveling the whole Pacific Coast almost annually. I would, you know, start one part of the year and I'd go all the way to Washington, right. go through, go everywhere I could go in Washington, all the bookstores, all the libraries, all the packing houses, all the farms. I would go find the printers and their artists, and I was insane. I went after everything, anywhere I could possibly get my hands on it. Right. And eventually, I got a feel for what all this stuff was worth, and. And in Washington State, there are 4,000 different labels to be had. Good grief. And in, in Oregon, there's 1,000. And in California, there's about 10,000 different labels to be had. And that's just the stuff that's collectible that we can find and get our hands on. After I spent enough years in this, I went to the printing companies in San Francisco as they were going out of business. And they said, well, you're a pretty interesting guy, and you're writing this book, you say, about agriculture. Right. You want our basement? And, of course, the answer is yes. <laughs> so I ended up with the basement files of five of the biggest printers on the West Coast. Get out. And I thought, you know, I really am just a custodian of this, and I owe posterity a debt. So I'm going to write not only a price guide, but a collector's guide so that everybody knows everything that I do. So I'm not just sitting on all of these things and enjoying them by myself. Everybody can really enjoy everything I've learned. So I did the price guide, and I did several books, and I've done a website, and I've just kept going over the years, and anyone who calls with any question, I'm happy to answer it. I'm happy to send them to my competitors. I'm, I'm not in this just for the money. Mm-hmm. I, I love the art form, and I love promoting the art form. And so, that's, it's just, that's what I had to do to give back for what I've been given. Oh, that is so cool. What a great story. Now, um, your uh, unpronounceable title, agrolithologist. Um, oh, good. Um, it was just luck, or I heard you do it earlier. But um, now, did you make a formal study of art and agriculture, or or uh, did I you just learn on your own? No, I grew up in the lumber business. Okay, okay. <laughs> and, and in high school, I found out I could play music and sing pretty well, so I had a band, and I uh, so I was working at the lumber yard, you know, sometimes like during the summers, and then I had my musical career as it was starting at the time. I was working pretty much mm-hmm. a lot in the Bay Area around San Francisco, so I made a fair living doing that. But when I got into the labels. That just, it was just fascinating. So I continued along that line, and somebody asked me one day, well, what do you call these things? And I said, well, fruit crate labels. He said, but they're for, so that, does that make you a fruit label collector? And I go, well, no. He goes, you should have, like, you know, a PhD or some kind of name. Yeah. And I go, well, it's agricultural printing, and printing is lithography. and So it's an agrolith, something or other. Yeah. Agrolith. Or agri- so it just kind of was tongue in cheek. I mean, there isn't really some designation for it. It was just made up. That is, but it, 
it's um it looks impressive. I mean, here on your uh, your signature line of your email, because uh, I looked at it and thought, oh wow, this guy's gonna you know rock my world with all kinds of stuff I won't be able to understand. That it, uh, it's all smoke and mirrors. Well, it, it's working <laughs> now. Um, I've been in it thirty years. Oh, okay. Well, that was the next thing I was going to ask you is um, how long you had done it, and do you do this full time? No, I also still do music, and I write some books, and I um, started the stained glass business, so I also have a website that's all about my stained glass work. And I just, um, I'm 53 now, and and back in the mid-80s, I worked in San Francisco briefly in one of those great big tall buildings next to the Transamerica Pyramid, and I Mm -hmm. looked out my window, and I hated working in the city, and I just didn't enjoy the work world, and so I, I went to work for myself in 1984 to see if I could do it. And I haven't stopped working for myself. Good for you. I have to do music. I have to do books. I do labels. I do glass. I do gigs. I do whatever will keep, you know, everything paid and keep me <laughs> go get a real job. Yeah, for but real. Actually, actually, labels is a real job. Writing books and doing historical work and indexing this stuff and keeping up with trends. And it, it, it is a job. It really is. Do you, um, do you have, like, uh, anyone that helps you with cataloging all the different labels that you got from the printer's basement? Or is that something you did on your own? Wow, what a body of work! And um, tell us how many books you've you've written, because I bet listeners are going to want to be interested in in finding those. Well, I've written. Well, I'm pretty much the only place you can get them. I used to have them on Amazon. Um, I've written collectors' guides that have been updated, so I have several releases of the collectors' guide. And okay. One should be in the works one of these days. And then um, I did price guides, and then I started putting things on my website. And about the time I got interested in eBay and the internet and started working for a local internet company, a whole bunch of people started selling labels online. Yeah. So you can find labels, and, and you can get price variances on a lot of different websites. Um, then I wrote a book on sushi, because uh, I love sushi. So for seven years, I studied sushi and Japanese cuisine and, and marine life and everything you'd ever possibly want to know about sushi. And I wrote a big book about it. And then somebody asked me about writing a book about the history of the Northwest. So I started with the Indians and went all the way to present. And it's the history of the entire British Columbia, Washington, Oregon, Idaho, Montana, the whole westward agrarian movement up there. And it's, it's, the whole story is told through images of labels. It's over 100,000 words. It's 550 pages. They're you, not selling like hotcakes, but, but, you're but co- it, was a, it was a job I had to do. So that's... That's well, a couple of the books I've got out. Well, you're quite the Renaissance man being able to combine um, a love of art and history and writing and music and sort of make up your own job, as it were. Um, yeah. I think probably you're the envy of a lot of people listening today. Well, you know, I'll tell you, a lot of my musician friends work until one in the morning and they get up at noon. But for the last 30 years, I've been at my desk at eight o'clock every morning, including weekends. Wow. So when you work for yourself, People think, oh, it's easy. You work for yourself, but there's no paycheck coming, and there's no insurance check, and there's no, you know, yeah. time off for good behavior. You work for yourself, and you carve every day out as you make it. And yeah, that is a challenge. Yeah, I, I, I can imagine the people who I know who do own their own businesses all have to work a lot harder than the rest of us because, uh, it's as you say, there's no paid vacation or, uh, or anything. Now, for people listening who might want to start collecting fruit crate labels, what's a good first step? Well, there's two kinds of labels in the world. 
um, there are what we call common labels, and that that means when we found them, as I've been traveling the coast and other people have. Remember the story about the guy who gave me a carload? Right. Well, he was giving me bundles of labels, and a bundle of labels has a thousand labels in it, right. and it's tied with string, and it's in a box with several other bundles. So, you know, I've got five or six thousand of those. You can get those for 25 cents to a dollar or two. Mm-hmm. And there's hundreds and hundreds of beautiful labels you can get online or from me or from a number of places that are pretty inexpensive. You can get a hundred different labels for 50 bucks, that kind of thing. Uh-huh. So those are common labels. And there are thousands of different kinds. There's ones from, like I said, many different states for many different commodities, from many different eras. So you can get like 50 different ones with Indians or 20 different ones with pretty girls or 20 different ones with trains. So you can collect topically, you can collect regionally. Mm-hmm. So that, that kind of makes up what we call the body of collectible material, mm-hmm. the bulk labels we have found over the years. The second kind of labels for collectors is rare stuff. Right. We only found eight of this or 22 of this were found on a shelf in the packing house the day before it burned down. Oh, yeah. Those may cost you hundreds of dollars, some of them even thousands of dollars, and it's a completely different game when you get into rare labels as it would be with any other type of collection. Who would you say, from a demographic point of view, who are fruit crate label collectors? Oh, an awful lot of people come from agriculture. Okay. In Washington State, for example, since there were thousands of orchards, well, you know, there's a couple hundred guys that have been collecting the labels of the people in their valley. Mm-hmm. In Yakima, you, you collect the local labels from all the different Yakima growers as far back as you can. Right. And if you're from Wenatchee, you do the same thing. If you're from Florida, you collect stuff from your region of Florida. You know, some people like just Pinellas County or some people want, you know, just labels with alligators on them or, or that kind of thing. But um, there's also labels from Arizona and from Texas and from many different states. So the first kind of collector is the regional mm-hmm. collector or the agriculturally related collector. The second kind of collector is somebody who collects to put them up in their house. They're thematic, usually, or topical collectors. Mm-hmm. There's one fellow back east who collects anything at all with an Indian on it. Oh, wow. And he's, he's probably got 800 labels in his collection, and every one of them has an Indian. That is so, so cool. So those are the topical type collectors. So you've got regional, topical um, I don't know. It's, it's, the people contact me from all over the world and ask for different things. I know people in Spain who collect labels, and I had a call today from a man in Amsterdam yeah. who is remaking wooden boxes so that he can stick inexpensive labels on them for Europeans. No they kidding. Can, like decorate their house with some boxes with labels on them. Just incredible. So, uh, yeah. I got to tell you, Pat, that um, I've, I've enjoyed talking to you so much. You're uh, you're such an interesting guy with such an interesting hobby and an example of, um, you know, frankly speaking, not not the more pedestrian kind of collectible we talk about. I mean, we talk about stamps and baseball cards, um, but it always seems to me that it's this kind of uh, of an interview when we talk to somebody who's invented a hobby, uh, like it sounds like what what you did, that really are, you know, to my mind, some of the better better interviews that we have on the show so th- thank you so much for uh for carving some time out for us on on the collector show and your website is www.fruitcratelabels.com and uh your glass one is millenniumartglass.com 
great label and it's spelled E-L-S. A lot of people get that wrong and they get a competitor of mine. Oh, no. So on my website, it'll say, welcome to Pat Jacobson's TrueCrateLabels.com or Millennium Art Class. I always put my name on it. You can just Google my name and I'm pretty easy. Pat Jacobson with FruitCrateLabels.com. Thank you so much for being on The Collector Show with us this week. Thank you very much for having me. Stay tuned for the Found Collectibles of the Week with Heather Gallegos coming up next on The Collector Show. Well, continuing our trek across America this week with found collectibles and Heather Gallegos, we're going to be going into the American Midwest. And Heather, thanks for being with us. And let's talk about the Midwest. Hi, Harold. This week we're going to cover the states of Wisconsin, Michigan, Illinois, Indiana, and Ohio. That's a lot to cover. It is. It's quite a few. So we'll just cover some real high points. How about that? Sounds good. Sounds good. Okay. Well, if we start out with Wisconsin, uh, we'll want to make a trip to Beloit, where the Angel Museum is. All right. It's the world's largest collection of angel figurines, and it's housed in an old Catholic church. It's located at 656 Pleasant Street, which I just thought that seems appropriate. It does. It seems like angels would need to be pleasant. (laughs) Exactly. It's located, uh, the hours are Tuesday and through Saturday, 10 a.m. to 4, okay. and on Sunday from 1 p.m. to 4. All right. And, uh, so you could go after oh, church if uh, if you had a mind right. to. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the curator, her name is Joyce Bing, mm-hmm. and she and her husband have been collecting angels since 1976. Wow. They have over 12,000 in their collection. Figurines. Yes, and it's continuing to grow. But the coolest thing about this museum is Joyce, if you call in advance, she will dress up in her silver silver angel costume, complete with wings and halo, as she takes you on the tour. <laughs> Ooh. Okay, I, I, if you're not nine years old and in the school play, grown-ups got no business dressing up in angel costumes. Maybe it's just me. I know, but it just sounds so cute. <laughs> or disturbing. <laughs> He's very pleasant. <laughs> okay. Um, I'm going to skip stopping in Wisconsin. Where else could we go? Well, okay. We can also go and see Sissy the Cow, Ooh. which is in DeForest. She is at 4879 County Road 5. Okay. She's at the Ellenbach Cheese Chalet. So not only could you pick up some cheese, but you get to see a giant cow. Oh, it's a, it's a, it's not, I was, I'm sitting here thinking the world's biggest cow, but it's a, it's a statue. It's a a statue. In Wisconsin, you know, you think of cheese. cheese Always, Or the Dells. (laughs) That's right, right, Wisconsin Dells. But this sounded kind of cute. You can get a picture with Sissy, and she's huge. She's painted. She's a giant statue. That's cool. So I thought that was kind of neat. Yeah. Everybody wants to see that. Yeah. There's. There's actually many things to see. The um, Baraboo, Wisconsin, as well, they have the largest collection of circus wagons in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And in addition to that, they also have hundreds of circus artifacts, including costumes, posters, and even a, a working calliope. Oh, sweet. It's, I know. It's all housed at the Circus World Museum that's located at 550 Water Street. And they're open Monday through Saturday, 10 to 4, and Sunday, 11 to 4. So it's just a weekend attraction. 
no, Monday through Oh, Saturday. I beg your pardon. I'm sorry. Yeah, all week. Mm-hmm. That sounds like so fun. That just sounded really fun, especially with the working calliope. Oh, yeah. That is really cool. I would imagine there are plenty of people who listen to this show and who have probably been to this place who collect circus memorabilia. That's a good mm-hmm. idea for a future program. Absolutely. Note, yeah, I'm sure there's people there that would love to talk to you. Note to self. <laughs> Make a note. Yep. <laughs> okay. Well, why don't we move on, leave Wisconsin, and okay. move on to my home state of Michigan. All right. And if you're heading toward, well, if I'm heading toward the uh, Detroit Metro Air pe- Airport mm-hmm. and Allen Park, right from the freeway, you can see the world's largest tire. It's always visible. We don't get a lot of, you know, foggy days here in Michigan. No, we don't. It's right on I-94. So that's something really neat to see. You can take a picture of it. It's huge. And it, with, uh, you know, the current economy notwithstanding, it is still the capital of automobile manufacturing any place. So, apropos of that, the world's biggest tire. Absolutely. And then if we move closer to where I live, Bay City, Roadside America did print that there is the world's largest toilet seat. <laughs> and I just like to correct that record because that's not true. Oh. It's not really, it looks like a toilet seat, but it's not. It's really just a, like a, an oval with kind of a larger part at the base. Resembling a toilet seat, but it's not. It's actually the world's friendship show, uh-huh. and it is in Winona Park in Bay City. It's free. You can go visit it anytime. The park is always open, and it's in the beautiful downtown district of Bay City, Michigan. And I will say, since Bay City is near here, it is a beautiful um, city to visit. I it had really never, is. you know, until you and I talked, I had never heard about um, the world's biggest friendship toilet. And so. <laughs> I'm edified to know that, but I'm not going to visit. I think you should. I think you should get a picture. (laughs) And uh, I don't want to see the world's biggest butt cheeks on the world's biggest toilet either. Okay. You just need to visit it. It's quite lovely, actually. If you, you know, maybe they should have gone with white. I think that's the real issue. Oh, no. What color is it? It's white. It's a giant white oval. All right. I think even builds on the toilet seat idea. Well, you know, the guy who um, who publishes Roadside America, I found this out last week, has a, a, his own radio program here on Web Talk Radio. So maybe word will get to him that um, he has he mistakenly identified <laughs> the friendship shell as a toilet yeah. seat. Maybe somebody yeah. was pulling his leg. I think so. But that site, I must say, Roadside America is a great site. The fact that people write in and update the um, entries on all the different locations that you can visit so you get different critiques of these sites. Oh, yeah. It is phenomenal. It is a great website. Yeah, and I've seen um, a television program devoted to it, I think, on the Travel Channel. And so, yeah, we we heartily endorse uh, Roadside yeah. America. Absolutely. It's a great site. But let, let's head up to the UP because, as you know, Michigan is divided into two. Right. The Upper and Lower Peninsula. So we'll head as a as a Michigander, I just refer to it as the UP, but right. it's really the Upper Peninsula. And if we go up to Ironwood, we have the Statue of Hiawatha, oh. which is actually the world's tallest and largest standing Indian. Okay. And he guards the land route into the Upper Peninsula. He's completely made of fiberglass. And um, it's just, it's an amazing, amazing statue is to see him. He's huge. I, was, I thought you were going to say, and he's guarding the world's biggest casino, but... <laughs> There are. Yeah, that's why I thought that, but never mind. No, he's not there for that reason. He, 
he was up long before the uh, casino popularity took hold in Michigan. Okay. And then we can just go over actually to my husband's hometown of Ishpeming, and they have the Youpers Tourist Trap. And I don't know if your listeners would know, but the Youpers, they're a local band yes. from the UP, and they have a gift shop. And in that gift shop, they also have the world's largest working chainsaw, a giant shotgun as well that's out in front that is mounted to a car. Mm-hmm. It's quite impressive to see. <laughs> I have actually been there. Yeah. And they have quite a collection from t-shirts and figurines and posters and all sorts of different things. So it, it's kind of a cute little shop if you're in that part of the um, of Michigan. Well, I, I, <laughs> something to see. I admire their transparency of just coming out and saying, yeah, it's a tourist trap. It really is, yeah. They don't, there's no bones about it. Okay. It's fun. Sounds it's like very it. very cute. Yeah. Well, then let's move on to Illinois. Okay. We'll go on down there. You know, the land of Lincoln, there's several things. There is the world's largest statue of Lincoln. Sure. 72-foot tall in Ashmore. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's really, from the pictures and even from the critiques, he's kind of ugly and a little scary looking. He's really thin and um, just really homely. So, yeah. That, you know, we had... Um Back in February, we did a show on on Lincoln and had people from the Lincoln mm-hmm. Presidential Museum on. Oh. And one of the things about him was he was very self-conscious about the way he looked. And one of the reasons oh. he grew a beard was um, because of his, uh, how can I say this, um, handsomeness deficit, I guess. I oh. But yeah, he's... Uh, um, that was why he grew a beard. But anyway, we're off. That well, gets us a little off the like topic. The statue then, because it's not pleasant to look at at all. Even but, worse. Yeah, but actually, there's there's quite a few religious, like, like world's largest things in Illinois, which I was surprised to find. Okay. If you were to go to Justice, Illinois, there's the world's largest stained glass window, and it's at the uh, uh, Resurrection Cemetery. It, it's part of the mausoleum. Mm-hmm. It's just beautiful. It's 22,381 square feet long. It's huge. See, I would have guessed that the world's biggest stained window would have been at a church in Europe. But I'd have been been wrong. Yeah, you would have. It's right here in the U.S. They also have the world's largest cross, and that's in Effingham. And I'll spell that for you. E-F-F-I-N-G-H-A-M. It's 198 feet tall. It's huge. Mm Mm-hmm. So that would be something to see. And then also in Darien, they have the world's largest religious wood carving. It depicts the life of St. Teresa. But the cool thing about this is that the carving itself contains five first-degree relics. Okay, now... When we say first-degree, yeah. (laughs) That's what I was going to ask you. That means, well, they have a piece of her flesh. They have fragments of her bones. So these, these are actual pieces of St. Teresa. But it's free to go see. <laughs> and it's just open Monday through Sunday, 10 a.m. to 4. Okay. Well, okay. Now, once upon a time, people may remember we tried to get um, a fellow who collects these kinds of relics, not of uh, religious figures, but of mm-hmm. um, historic and popular figures. And so it's not unheard of to have right. these kinds of things. Um and they're venerated by, um, and I'm not Catholic, but you are, and yes. are uh, venerated by the church, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, they are. They must be. At one time, every Catholic church had a relic in it from its patron saint. Okay. That was just the way it was. Every church had that. So, I mean, it's 
it's very common in the Catholic religion to have those pieces of artifacts or relics from the saints. It's, it's not uncommon. But when you think of a piece of flesh, you know, encased in, in a glass box or whatever, it, it does take on a little bit of a, a weird aspect, I think, especially if you're not raised Catholic. Well, my, the, <laughs> the first thing I thought of was jerky. Oh, that's yucky. Okay, no, no. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's not the of a dead saint. I'm okay. sorry. Ooh, I'm picturing this room full of locusts now. Okay, sorry. Moving right along. You. Let's go on to Indiana, shall we? Let's do. Let's go to Chesterton, which has the Wizard of Oz Museum. It is off um, I-49. And it is the Yellow Brick Road gift shop and museum. It has a collection of photos, but here comes the cool part. Also a collection of homemade Wizard of Oz paraphernalia. Oh, cool. That sounds very cool. It only costs a quarter to get in. A, qu- a quarter? A quarter. According to Roadside America, people may want to look it up and call and verify to make sure if the admit- admission has gone up or not. Yeah. But who would not want to see homemade? I heard. I mean that that sounds very cool. I heard an urban legend that I have to uh, share about the Wizard of Oz. If you're watching the movie, there's a a scene somewhere in where the Munchkins are, where you can see something falls in the background, oh, yeah. and the urban legend was always it was one of the Munchkins was hanging himself. Yeah, but it's like a light falls. Right. But um. But I've heard that legend. I know that's really sad. Why would you want to? Be mean to the munchkins and say what, something like that. Who, why would anyone want to be unkind to a munchkin? No, I would not. It's beyond me. It, absolutely. Okay. All right, let's move on to Alexandria because this one is just very cool. It's the world's largest ball of paint. Sorry, owner, it sounded like you said ball of paint. I did say ball of paint. Okay. The owner, Michael Carmichael, he took a baseball, and over the last 30 years, he has been adding coats of paint to it. Uh-huh. And today, there are over 21,000 coats of paint on this ball. It weighs over 900 pounds. Get out of here, really? I, I swear to God, you can call and make an appointment, and you can put on a layer of paint. You even get to pick the color that you want to paint it. Oh, that's... Is that not so cool? Now, that's pretty neat. It's very cool. It's at 10696 North 200 West. Oh, that is so So you cool. have to call for an appointment. I, I didn't get the phone number. I'm sorry about that. But that, to me, I am tempted to take my kids there. How cool is that? That would be kind of fun. And it would be Absolutely. fun to call him up and say, um, um, can I see your ball? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> All right. The world's biggest ball. Yeah. Biggest ball. Yellow paint. I just thought that sounded very neat. But I think okay, oh, it speaks to the chemical strength of the latex in That's paint. Right. <laughs> but 30 years, it may have like an oil base. Could like, be. Don't you think? It I could think be. years ago. I, I don't know. My knowledge of paint right, is limited. Ohio. Yeah, let's well, do it. No, I was just saying my knowledge of paint chemistry is limited. So. Well, okay. All right, but this is really cool, too, in Bel Air, Ohio. They have the Bel Air Toy and Plastic Brick Museum. And what's cool about this place is it's the world's largest privately owned collection of Legos. Ooh. And we've, we've talked about Legos in the Found Collectibles. Yeah, we have. And I, yeah, so this is at 4597 Noble Street. It's open daily, noon from um, noon to 5 p.m. 
And then on Thursday, they, they're open a little bit later, noon to 7 p.m. Now, adults, it's an $8 admission. Uh, senior citizens, $6. And children under 5 are only $5. But I just thought that was amazing. It's actually been recognized by the Guinness Book of World Records because it has a life-size replica of an 18-wheeler, oh, all made out of Legos. Legos were, I really was, I think I was born too late for, for Legos, or too early, rather, because um, I don't remember, we played with blocks, but we didn't have Legos, but the things that you see that come in the kits just for Lego look like yeah. a lot of fun, and if you had that many, how could you not be having a good time? Uh, yeah, they, there's castles, there's boats, there's so many different things at this museum on display, and I must say, my first trip to uh, Europe, I had went uh, to France mm-hmm. as well. And we were just walking down a street in one of the main shopping districts, and there was a toy store, and they had depicted an entire scene of pirates, part of a ship, and also, like, the, the treasure chest, all out of Legos. And it was literally the most amazing thing I have ever seen. I, I, it was breathtaking. Yeah. And I was in France, so I'm thinking, <laughs> you know, the Eiffel Tower, <laughs> all the museums. Lego. But it was impressive. Yeah. It was very, very impressive. Well, that's neat. All those sound yeah. like fun. And again, you know, like we've talked about before, they're not expensive. They're a good way to right. explore new kinds of collectibles like Legos or right. just collect uh, postcards and fun pictures of you and your kids during summer vacation. So, I mean, it, and for me, all of these places are a car drive, basically. Oh, yeah. You know, now that we're in the Midwest, and as we reach out to our listeners across the United States, I mean... It's a car drive for a lot of people where they're going to go. Or if they're planning a vacation, they can start adding some of these places into their stops. Absolutely. And we'll commend uh, the Roadside America site and the radio show to listeners to go get even more information. Well, Heather, thank you as always. Thanks, Harold. Now, next week, we're going to move south, both with the Found Collectible and with our one of our interview segments. We're going to be talking to an expert on Texas history and specifically about a collection of artifacts from the San Jacinto battlefield that are part of the San Jacinto Monument and Historical Museum, which is just south of Houston, Texas. But not many people are aware of the amount of war collectibles that are not Civil War collectibles here in North America that are a result of the Texas Revolution coming up next week on The Collector Show. Now, last week and the week before that, we talked about Ripley's Believe It or Not. If you missed one of those shows, and I know a lot of people were traveling and out of pocket, you can go back and listen to that here on Web Talk Radio, or you can go to iTunes and download any of the shows from The Collector Show that you may have missed. So check that out. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, and it'll be automatically added to your iPod. So have that in mind if you've missed a show or if you want to go back and hear something that we've done previously. So for now, thanks for listening, and we'll see you again next week on The Collector Show. If I had a million dollars If I had a million dollars Well, I'd buy you some art Thanks for listening to The Collector Show. See you next week. If I had a million dollars I'd buy your love I 
I'd be rich. 